First up in our panel is Liz. You know what? I just realized we had a whole conversation about our director's last name, and I didn't ask you yours. So slap me when you get on. But I'm going to say Liz Manishil. Uh, she's a former Hulu PBS film critic. She's the co-host of the podcast of Making Movies is Hard, formerly managed Sundance Institute's Creative Distribution Initiative, and currently in prep on her third feature film as a writer, director, producer, among many, many other things like consulting with filmmakers, which you'll tell us what you do in a second. Thank you, Liz, for joining us. And we also have Glenn Reynolds, founder of Circus Road Films. He helps filmmakers navigate the world of distribution, including handling negotiations and sales on their behalf. Circus Road has participated in the sales of over 700 narrative and documentary feature films from huge festivals and brought by the biggest distributors in the world. And he's even co-produced 20 films to date. I feel just super lucky that we get to rack, just I get to just pick your brains until you're like, I have nothing left, Jen, go away. Thank you guys for being here. Um, Liz, please, how do you say your last name? <laughs> Manichelle, like, man, it's a shell. Manichelle. <laughs> yeah. Manichelle. Great. Um, so I want to just kind of jump right into our questions here. And the, the first one being, what can a filmmaker do just from the beginning to set themselves up for success? <laughs> I know. I told you we're jumping right in. So I haven't, let's say I have an indie film, which, you know, we all do. Um, I'm going to go, I haven't filmed yet. Are there things I can do in the beginning with either choosing my script or what I choose to do with cast? Are there things I can do before I even get to set to help me set myself up for success? So, I mean, I don't know if you could tell by my floral outfit and my frizzy hair, but I'm a bit of a hippie. And I believe an artist makes work um, because they have to and because they're scratching an itch and that itch can't be manufactured. You know, it's something that comes from your soul. Um, so I never really advocate for people to follow the marketplace or to make content in a certain genre, a certain story. Uh, it always ends up feeling false or phony and um, that's not what art is for, right? Um, but I would say I'm a huge advocate for building a relationship directly with your audience. So whether it's running an email newsletter or going on social media or having virtual screenings or when we can come together in community and in person, meeting people face to face as often as possible who watch your work, I would, I would say the first thing that you should do is have an open mind about uh, connecting with your audience, communicating with the audience and setting yourself up with like a web presence, social media, all these things so that you can connect with them. And then when it comes to distribution, if you own your audience, um, you're not uh, so reliant on distributors or marketers because you can actually um, directly communicate with them about your work. Glenn, do you share that same philosophy? Or do I you do very much uh, in the sense of like, I don't, like, you shouldn't make a horror movie unless you're a horror movie lover and aficionado and have deep ingrained uh, story to tell that that lends itself to a horror movie, um, you, you know, which you know, I, I use horror movie because that seems to be, you know, parentally the, the most uh, uh, commercial property, you know, properties out there, are horror films. Um, and then you go down to the totem pole to thriller, comedy, drama. But I agree with Liz, you should, it always should be a story from the heart, something you need to tell. Um, with regard to story, I think it's most important to have a great story, to, to work on your story, to sh you know, shop your story around with your friends and your colleagues to get to that place where it's, it's you know, you got to feel like it's bulletproof before you start raising funds, before you start shooting. Because um, when you look at most finished films that don't work, it always goes back to the story itself. And that's, that's I think, key. So let's talk about indie filmmakers who they, they so they are making their story from their heart. They've written a script. It's pretty tight. They're going to set. They have no money. They do, is it better for them to spend their money on a star name for distribution purposes later? Or is it better to spend their money on, you know, say camera and locations and things that are on screen as a whole? I have an answer as a producer, not necessarily as a distributor. Do you want to take this one, Glenn, first, and then I can follow up with sure, my <laughs> Sure. I mean, my my knee jerk. Most independent filmmakers I know can't afford actors, so it's not even like a, a really even a question, right? And we kind of live in a world where, at least regard to star value, you're either a list or you're not. There's not really a B level that works to help monetize a film anymore. 
um, just because we don't have the bargain bin at Walmart. We don't have like these kind of mid-level successes anymore. We either have kind of your grassroots, you know, buy your bootstraps, you know, films at work, or you hit Sundance and you sell for a lot of money. And there's a lot, there's not a lot of uh, in between. Um, so, yeah, I think that, um, you know, it, it, you know, it also, it's also relative. Like if you're thinking, Oh, I've got this little, you know, this tiny little $3 million budget. <laughs> well, okay. You should get a star. You could, you should, you should get someone that, you know, well, I should say you should, you should be, you know, going to the SAG pool of actors that mean something in Hollywood, whether they're a list or not yet, if they're maybe they're up and coming um, in order to, you know, build some insurance against, you know, complete failure because at the end of the day you're risking someone's three million dollar three million dollars it's not just a, a pet project um so yeah i guess it's, it's a little relative to your budget um i've uh i'm i'm not as cool as jenna is i haven't done six movies and i i think that you should be here instead of me Jen. <laughs> but like i would love to hear about your films um but in my two features that i've written directed produced and cast um we did get name talent and dowd Emmy winner was the lead of my second feature, Bobby Moynihan, Lauren Lapkus, um, Jeff Perry, Vela Leva. I mean, like these may not be Brad Pitt, but these are, as I say, a list of my heart. And um, I didn't have a casting director and I made SAG ultra low budget features. Um, I understand that they might not have a lot of meaning in terms of international territory sales. It's not like you could say, I got Vela Lavelle, give me a million dollars. But, uh, it surely helped in terms of festivals um, and in terms of distribution. The only reason my first feature got distribution with this amazing company called The Orchard, which is no longer around, um, and they were good to me, um, was because someone was trolling IMDb at Lauren Lapkus's page. And so I think there's a way that um, you can attract named talents in a certain bracket uh, at a lower budget. And it certainly has affected me. But um, I advocate for MFN a lot. And I don't know if it's uh, inappropriate or if it's bad taste to to kind of say that in a panel right now. But um, MFN is most favored nations. And it's a way of paying everyone the same rate so that there isn't kind of bitterness on set and everyone kind of feels like they're equal. So um, the way I've been able to, and you you should probably interview my crewmates um, who maybe are resentful of MFN and maybe they hate that I'm doing this, but I usually pay cast and crew um, across the board, the same rates. And that is the way I've been able to uh, use my very small budgets to get the most out of a collaborative environment. And then um, there are cheats to some of those things you were talking about, Jen, like, or insinuating that you can use for marketing distribution. You could do labor swaps for a set photographer, or you can, you know, um, crowd, you could, well, labor swaps for anything, actually, for social media support, for trailers, for for anything. Um, so point being, there's a way to spread out the money and kept, keep it equitable and kind um, and also get name talent. I think there's a possibility there. I welcome all the new filmmakers who are joining us, Amy and Kate and Bandit. You guys are all over the world. We love it. Thanks for joining us. Uh, so, you mentioned festivals a few times. Uh, how important have festivals been? And Glenn, I know that you actually, I think you found me through a festival, but how important are festivals to you getting distribution or is it just a way to find filmmakers? Well, for me, um, it, there's kind of two uses. One is uh, I, I definitely find clients through festivals, um, but then I also quite often use festivals to help sell the movie. Um, there being kind of two levels to that. There's the Sundance South by Tribeca level, well, pre-pandemic days where you could try to get people into a room and, and it was a better experience for watching a movie. And and then and it was, you know, a, a place where everybody, the perception is all the best films are there. Um, and then there's just using the, you know, smaller but not as well attended festivals that still has some cachet like Seattle or Austin or whatnot, just to uh, kind of build up, the, build up the brand, create some awareness. Um, uh, I definitely, I definitely uh, help my film. I advocate films to festivals to try and help get them in. It's part of what I do. So we definitely think of that as part of the process. Now that we're 
you know, they're, they're a little bit less effective now that they're, they're uh, virtual rather than in person. Um, so it, it really kind of has um, opened my eyes to the fact that uh, at the end of the day, the most important thing is the film itself to distributors. And do they dig the movie? Do they think it's commercial beyond all the trappings of what festival it played and whatnot? So um, it, it'll be interesting to see, uh, you know, come this new, you know, Sunday, this new uh, 2021, we go into Sundance and South by in the usual route that we go with films, uh, how that all plays out and how that it'll be a lot different and how that affects the market. It's hard to say. It's, I think that's the hardest thing about even having this conversation we're having because there's just so many unknowns. Just it's the, our business is probably one of the most affected businesses probably in the country, I would say. Um, we just don't know what's going to happen day to day. Have you, Liz, found, did you do a lot of festivals with your films? I do. I'm kind of like a mid-tier festival queen, um, but I worked at Sundance for a few years. And so I've seen how the sausage is made to a degree, <laughs> to the degree that they let me. Um, and I found that as an emerging filmmaker, prior to making my first feature and making my first feature, it it's really helpful, the festival world it gives you this massive emotional boost. It reminds you that you put something out into the world that other people are enjoying. I know it's just a laurel, but um, those laurels have been really meaningful because those it's reflective of the audience that I've reached out to. Completely agree with Glenn with what he's saying. Distribution's gonna occur whether or not these festivals succeed or not. The market's gonna occur, but the, the value of top tier festivals and their curation is still prevalent. It's still a real thing. Like if you get into Sundance, even if Sundance doesn't happen, you're still a Sundance branded film. And those mid-tier festivals do well in terms of aggregating critical acclaim and prestige and brand. Totally agree 100%. Um, I would say it's those lower tier festivals, if they don't offer any sort of networking ticket splits, if they don't uh, tell you any audience information, all they do is offer a laurel and then profit from your film, you start to question, what am I really getting from that relationship? And so I think it's really important to be very selective in what you submit to so that you don't waste your hard earned money or heart or soul um, in the festival world um, without getting anything back. Uh, Kate Carson has a question for you guys. Has there been any replacement model for pre-sales since those have largely disappeared? Uh, <laughs> the, the short answer is no. Uh, the, you know, the way people seem to be fighting, you know, it depends on what level of project you're talking about again. But if you're talking about a larger project that used to need a pre-sale, there, there are still pre-sales that happen. Um, they mostly happen for A-list type films. Um, and even then, you know, your, your pre-sales are going to be 20%, 30% of your budget. You're still going to have to, you know, get tax credits somewhere, raise some equity. So even, even a pre-sale, even a pre-sales deal, um, um, uh, pre-sales, pre-sold film is going to need other types of financing to help it get off the ground. But do you I mean, guys find that indie films actually ever real? I'm talking indie, not studio indie, <laughs> like true indie, you know, 250,000 to the $3 million range. Do they, do they ever really have a pre-sale option? Like, I feel like that's for the big guys. No, it's for the big guys now. Yeah. It really, really is. Um, well, let's talk about distribution deals because um, a lot of our filmmakers now, I know so many filmmakers who are right now like struggling with, who they should go with the distributor because I don't think people understand that distributors are not marketers. They're literally just putting your movie up in places. You are the marketer. Um, so what is it that people should be looking for in a distribution deal? And what are the things they can negotiate? I would love anything you guys think of the next, even this could be the whole rest of the conversation if we, <laughs> to, but, uh, whatever you think of, like, let's get that out on the table to help them out. Yeah. Liz, do you want to go or you want me to go? Yeah. My whole, business model, I became a consultant because I was seeing too many filmmakers getting taken advantage of. Um, and I've written a lot of articles about this at Sundance and um, I, I want to hold uh, the fire to the feet of bad distributors really. Uh, and I would say what's important, you should ask yourself what's more important, right? Is it 
associating yourself with a powerful brand, even if it comes at a cost of like creative accounting? Um, is it, uh, you know, getting to the most amount of eyeballs or making the most amount of culture, cultural impact as you can? But ultimately, I always um, lie on the side of creative distribution, retaining some rights, splitting them amongst various different partners, working with uh, transparent distributors who provide regular quarterly reporting to you on asked for. Sorry. They those exist? They, they do. They do exist. Uh, ones that answer your emails um, that, are, that allow you to negotiate term lengths that are reasonable. Because if you don't know what's happening next month in terms of distribution, why should you sign a 15-year deal with anyone? Um, so in terms of things that you can negotiate, I mean, I'm sure Glenn and I could go into it and maybe we will. Uh, but for me, it's more important to get in bed with an honest, upstanding company and kind of contribute to that culture rather than sell a little bit of my soul to um, the oral, old world of distribution, which really left filmmakers out of the conversation the majority of the time. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, you know, there are still, and there are still distributors that do some marketing too. Um, there's different levels of that. So if, you know, IFC takes on your film and they're going to be doing drive-in you know, theatricals, there's going to be marketing. Yeah. Um, uh, but yes, when you get down to the straight to digital space without, without the theatrical component of any kind, um, you know, you do see some distributors doing, still doing Facebook ads, Instagram ads, that kind of stuff. And um, sometimes doing some advertising within the cable VOD space. Um, and there are those distributors to avoid that, you know, really aren't doing anything but posting on their on their own website and calling that social media marketing and then charging off to some social media manager who did nothing. So, you know, there there definitely has, you know, people who truly market and people who don't don't market and pretend to market. Um beyond the marketing, then it's a matter of looking at to me, looking at the companies and, and where they stack up in terms of how they how they've done with their their films in the past and what what percentage of their, you know, because so some companies, it's fairly easy to get to, you know, Google Play, iTunes, Amazon, we can all do that through an aggregator. What's a little harder is the cable VOD space of Dish, DirecTV, in demand. There are some films that will work in that space and some films that won't. Um, it has to do with genre, name value, you know, poster, you know, lots of things. Um, and I found that some aggregate, some aggregators are not as good as, as distributor, some distributors at getting to that space, even though they have, they say, Hey, we'll try and put it on dish. They, there's a failure rate there. That's a lot higher than with distributors because it's a pitch at the end of the day to get it there. Um, the next part of that is their ability to sell SVOD uh, subscription video on demand or TV rights, you know, six months to a year after that, they started transactional. And if you, if you dive into looking at this, these distributors and like, you know, how many of their films do show up on Showtime or Netflix uh, later on, cause that can be a significant portion of the revenue. Um, there are some distributors that maybe bat like one out of three films getting that kind of sale and there are companies that never make that sale or bat one out of 20. And so that's an important part to try to try to uh, analyze when you're looking at that as well. Um, I want to backtrack us a little bit because we sure. know these terms, but not everybody might. So, and yeah. also the windowing you would do. So the first thing up, he says TVOD, meaning transactional video on demand, meaning people pay for your film, whether, and that's rentals as well. Yes. So it's like buying, rental or buying your individual paying account. money. Right. Then the next tier that I, it's weird because then people tend to go to SVOD streaming and then they tend to go to AVOD advertising, which I find backwards, but. Um, is well, that the, the way you guys? It depends again on the level of film and the distributor, um, because the reason to go to SVOD next is because it's a license fee payment, right? And the, usually the requirements of an SVOD agreement, SVOD is going to be like Netflix, right, or a Hulu, but it, or a Showtime or a Showtime, which is TV. And usually those agreements don't allow you to be on an AVOD side at the same time, and that's why you can't do you can't just go to both. So you go to uh, SVOD and TV and make that sale. You have a window there. It's either exclusive or non-exclusive. 
and then a couple years later, then you go to AVOD. So before which, we get to AVOD, the SVOD phase, if you are, say you're selling to someone like, Netflix is every filmmaker's big dream. Let's hold off on that for a second. Yeah. Let's talk like Showtime. Um, what kind of money are filmmakers going to get if Showtime buys them on average? It's a range. Um, probably on the low end, it's, you know, 20, 25 grand. Um, it can it can get up to six figures if they think it's something special and it's coming through the right distributor. Um, but probably if you're talking about like maybe the median, it's probably low five figures. I mean, that's that tends to be a lot of money for some indie filmmakers who yeah. are like, weren't going to have anything. So that's a great thing to know. And it's also cool because Liz, you do this too, I think, right? But Glenn, you actually can help filmmakers walk into those doors and sell their film to these people. Um, Cause the next question we have, which I'm gonna get to your question in a second, Ruben, but I want to go on really quick to, so AVOD advertising, that's things like Tubi, um, Crackle, where basically I can watch your movie for free, but I have to watch ads and the ads. How does that, how do filmmakers get paid like what percentage of that are they getting? Do you guys know? Yeah, it's a range. It probably tops out at about 15 cents per view. Um, in fact, like Amazon Prime subscription pays like AVOD. So if you understand, like, so like if you watch a hundred minutes of a, of a, of a movie on, on Amazon Prime subscription, they're paying out anywhere from one to 12 cents for every hundred minutes viewed. And the more it's viewed, the higher it goes. Painful. It's painful. And it's why you don't just go right to Amazon. Well, as long as we still have transactional working, and that's debatable how long transactional is still going to be a thing to me. I think in a couple of years, we're probably going to be in an AVOD and subscription model only. Um, but at least for now, there's a little window to do that transactional, get a higher price point, then make that TV sale. And then a, the reason you do AVOD is because everything else is gone. Right. No one's, you know, you're, you're old, you're, you're an old movie. If you're six months old now, right. Uh, you get that TV window, you don't, and you might as well get to AVOD because it's an increasingly large, uh, uh, bigger piece of the pie. And even though it's painful to see it at 10 cents or 15 cents per view, there are so many people watching there that it can, especially on Amazon prime, it can add up to a lot of money. Uh, and there's some exam there are some examples of films that have, almost solely made all their money through AVOD, but they were just the right kind of film for a Tubi, right. the right audience. They found their audience there and made, made some money. Let's talk self-distribution versus traditional. So a lot of this we've been talking about is more traditional. We go to a distributor, they do it. Um, and then self-distribution, you used the word aggregator earlier, which if you don't know, if you're watching, you know what an aggregator is. It's basically a website that you tend to pay them up front one fee they put it on all these sites that a distributor would put it on for, but ultimately you could make more money because maybe you pay 1500 bucks, but you get all the profit from those other sites. Uh, normally if a distributor puts it on all those sites, you get a percentage of whatever happens minus all of their fees that could be ridiculous. Um, which is why I recommend you guys talking to someone like Liz or Glenn before you go to distributors be, and not doing it yourself, which is getting us into Ruben's question, uh, because they know the language and they know what rights you can keep and they know what they can negotiate and you don't get, you know, super screwed over. And like you said, suddenly they own your film for 15 years and for what? Um, so Ruben asks, should filmmakers of an indie film reach out to distributors proactively? And when is the best time to do that after a festival premiere? Question mark. Um, I wrote an article for Sundance a few years ago where I interviewed 25 distributors and I asked them what they're looking for, how to approach them, um, where they find their content, yada, yada, yada. I'm writing a sequel right now. I'm really kind of excited about it. Um, a lot of distributors will not take unsolicited uh, submissions. And a, and a few of them will, um, you know, said to me in confidence that they have an email address on their website. And even though they said they don't take unsolicited submissions, they will check the email box and they will scan through to see if there's anything of note. Most of them said um, that they take recommendations from their former clients or, you know, uh, recommendations from lobbyists, like uh, amazing advocates for the film, sales agents, um, uh, lovely individuals in this industry. Uh, the reason I'm, I'm speaking with any sort of hesitant tone is that's what they're telling us. Um, and I do think that's probably the most successful way to get their attention. But 
uh, we and uh, not to get on a soapbox, but I think I'm about to. Uh, <laughs> we um, too very often the power's been out of our hands as artists, and um, why not? Why not reach out to them? Why not advocate for yourself? If um, not many people get the opportunity to work with someone like Glenn Reynolds or a really good sales agent like Glenn Reynolds. So um, we have to be our own advocate. And um, if you could put together a respectful pitch um, that explains why your film should be of note to them and you don't ping them every three days and you really um, market yourself well and prove that you have an audience for your content. I encourage people to break down those doors of division. Um, I do say again with a little bit of a caveat, it might not be the most effective routes. We're still entrenched in this kind of like elitist structure of us versus them. Um, I'm just encouraging people to break down those walls if they have the resources. And then to Ruben's question, when, when is the best time? Is it as soon as your movie's done? Do you wait till you try to get some accolades? Like, when do you think is the best time? From my perspective, it really depends on who's in your team. If you have, um, if you have an asset, if you have a film that has either um, a massive audience already aggregated or a name star or whatever it is that kind of sets your film apart and makes it look like an incredibly in-demand product, um, you don't necessarily need to wait until you have the validation of the film festival world. But if your film doesn't have those legs yet and you uh, wanna see what the marketplace values it as, um, I'd wait a little bit. Glenn, what are your thoughts on this whole? Yeah, so I think um, definitely, I don't think there's any issue in reaching out to anybody um, and trying to knock down a door. Um, a couple of things to keep in mind though are there's a lot of bad, distributors out there and even some with good brands. And um, so you need to do your due diligence and talk to other filmmakers and hear what other people's experiences have been. So when you're, you know, you get the, you know, you get an offer from someone and you, you jump up and down, but you, you know, you don't know, you know, you, you need to know their history. You need to know um, what proper deal terms are. There's a lot of things that go into making a decision to go in with the distributor. You need to be careful about it. It needs to be a lot of self-education um, before you knock on those doors, I think. Um, Which is why I always recommend that someone, whether it's a sales agent or just somebody that you trust, like that has gone through it. I always recommend filmmakers that you, yeah, like yeah, it's not say, educate actually, yourself. Even if you might go do it yourself, you might knock on the door of sales agents and producer reps first to get their take and get that feedback. That can be a bit of an education before you go knock on the distributor doors yourself. And most producer reps and sales agents I know are pretty, maybe a little bit more open to watching independent pro projects than distributors are. Um, but, um, and I think with regard to festivals, Oh, the one caveat thing, one other thing I'll say though, is like when you do your due diligence and you talk a lot of filmmakers about distributors, you're going to hear a lot of hate because most filmmakers don't like their distributors because most films don't work. And most film, you know, it's just the reality of the marketplace. Um, and most filmmakers end up blaming their distributor, whether it was really the distributor's fault or not. Um, quite often it is, but also quite often it isn't. So with those two caveats, I think it's worth, knocking down those doors on festivals uh, uh like Liz said it kind of depends on what kind of film you have um if you have a film that you know deserves to be in sundance and south by you should you should hold on to it and and use the use the leverage of getting in something like that to sell your film um uh, if you have a film that's really not a festival movie um some horror films um um some certain kinds of documentaries um aren't really you know aren't really even some kind of some people independently make very straight to tv kind of affair and if it, so if it plays like an old lifetime movie or something like that it still might have commercial value but it may not be right for the seattle film festival so um you know i think it just it does definitely whether you go to a festival or not just kind of depends on what kind of film you have um, so our our man, our, our Oz behind the curtain, John Parento, my co-producer on all things Black Magic Collective, is asking a great question. Um, basically, it boils down to, I know people who do this. I know people who 
their whole thing is like they make a film, whether it's like a horror film or a, a genre comedy, and they get it out there, they get it to Redbox, they make some money, they do it again. Does Are you valued by a distributor if they see that you keep making a movie and it keeps making a little money? Or do they see it, is that is it by a wiped down and less, less value you as a producer? Like, what are your thoughts on all that? I mean, I think um, if, you, if you're in that lucky position of cranking out things that are working and selling, um, I don't see how that's a negative to a distributor at all. Um, I think they're still probably mostly analyzing the film, the film in front of them and maybe a little bit how you supported the film to help it make it money. Um, that's going to bring some value there too. Um, you know, most, and most of these distributors are not also production companies, you know, so they're not looking to like fund the next one most of the time. Um, but um, so if we lived in that world, it'd probably be more, even more interesting, but, um, but uh, yeah, I don't think there's a downside to having successful films to, to distributors at all. Welcome all the new filmmakers joining us, Katrina from the OC and Ruben, thank you for your awesome question. Uh, if you're on here and you have questions, burning, please put them in your Facebook or YouTube chat box, wherever you are at your comment box, and we will get to it right away. I would like to talk about the big, um, the God to indie filmmakers, and that is Netflix. Do we know what's going, they, they change what they're doing every six months or so. Do we know what's going on now? Like, are they buying filmmakers films? Are they doing only original content? What do we know? So Liz, you want me to go? You want to well, go? Um, I want to jump in and answer the last question and then I can segue to you if that's okay. <laughs> yeah. um, I just want to say that I think the question underneath John's question also is um, relationship building. So there's something about having a track record, sure, but ultimately people are going to evaluate the project for what it is. But if you're working with a distributor and you have a positive relationship and you're working in mutual respect, I think that goes a long way. And I know it sounds like kind of a hippy dippy answer as per usual, um, but ultimately keeping up appearances and having positive communication with these uh, business partners, people that you're getting into bed with, um, is incredibly important. Um, in terms of Netflix, from my vantage point, I've heard whispers and rumors all the time, and I think it's the, you know, pipe dreams of indie filmmakers that Netflix is going to come around and start licensing our content again. I'm not seeing that. I'm still seeing that they're on the path of original content. It's it is the smarter business model, uh, but there are, we're in another iteration of the SVOD bubble, right? Where there's Peacock and there's HBO Max and there's, you know, there's more and more SVODs popping up. So there is more opportunity for um, individual content outside of a output deal to be licensed, uh, but I'm not seeing it happen at Netflix. There are some distributors that still seem to have a straight pathway to Netflix, but I wouldn't say that it's very often. I would say it's more on the unique side. Yeah. The um, so the originals division will look at films to see if okay, we'll turn this into an original thing, but it's extremely rare. Um, the it is more likely to get you're more likely to get a Netflix deal through a distributor that then goes to, uh, you know, does all the transactional first and then tries to sell it later. And um, I've had, a, you know, a few films over the last couple of years that have, have gotten that deal. Um, uh, and it adds a significant amount of revenue, but it's not, it is not, it still isn't quite the same as being a Netflix uh, pickup from Sundance or a, a Netflix original, right? Like that, they, that it gets, you know, front, page placement on Netflix. The other deal you can say I'm on Netflix, but it doesn't, you know, really doesn't quite, uh, you know, create the same kind of awareness. Uh, do we know, so what about these, we talked a little bit about other streamers, but um, you know, like who there's, there's Hulu is, is got a little clout behind. If you, if you get a Hulu, if you're on Hulu, um, what is the best way is really the best way to get to these streamers is through a distributor or is it through a sales agent? Like how, how do you best get to get your stuff on these bigger platforms? Those pitches coming from aggregators, like Glenn was saying earlier, are really 
zero chance. I mean, I, I think I heard a few success stories maybe three years ago of things coming from Distribber and being accepted by um, a prominent S5, but obviously <laughs> Distribber's gone uh, and, and it still continues to be a volume industry um, and aggregation. Um, but I've heard of stories from successful um, sales agents directly outside of distributors um, getting those deals, but I would love to hear what Glenn has to say. Yeah, no, I still present films to those guys and I get turned out a lot, but I just sold the film to Showtime last month. So they're still, you know, they're still buying. Um, and, um, but yeah, I've had more films though go the route of getting a distributor and then that distributor placing it with them, you know, six months later. And that, that's definitely still happening. Uh, so Zachy has a question about transparency. Um, I'm going to pop it up on the screen so we can all read it. But what if your distributor keeps on telling you that you can't produce reports because the platforms haven't given them reports due to COVID? Should you believe them? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> but wait, can the follow-up question for Zaki, I think, is how uh, how new is Zaki's release, right? Because there is a delay in terms of like Google Play yeah. and iTunes. Like they send estimates, but they might not be able to do the actual reporting for quite a few months, I think. I feel, and yeah, some please platforms start. report to the distributors monthly and some right. two months. And, yeah. then, and then they take all that information and they, they store it. And then usually you're reported to on a quarterly basis. So if your agreement, your agreement, I mean, most agreements are on quarterly basis. So most likely you're not really due to get anything. And most distributors just don't care about giving you real time results, even though it'd be nice. Um, there are there are a couple of there there are some uh, caveats to that, but um, most distributors um, just will kind of they just don't want to deal until they have to in terms of reporting. And if Saki, if you wanted to share the name of that distributor, I, I don't think people would be upset about hearing it. <laughs> if you have, if you do have a follow up to that, Zaki, please by all means uh, welcome Paula, actor, producer, director in L.A. And she says she's known Glenn for years, loving the beard <laughs> and adores black magic. Uh, so when it comes to rights to your film, it seems for me, I have a and Glenn knows this because I had a whole back and forth about it. But like I have a hard time giving up my rights to say Amazon when I know I can put it up myself and the distributor puts it up and they get the money and I don't see any money. What rights can I retain, at, if any, if I go with the distributor? Can I keep my website rights and sell things on my website? Like what can I keep? Um, I just went through this so I, I can inform a little bit and I'm sure Glenn is an expert in this vein, of course. Um, I kept airline rights. I kept theatrical. I kept semi-theatrical. This is in my latest feature that was just released in January. I approached an airline aggregator myself because that sounded fun. And I've just been put on Air Force One and made a deal to merchant ships. Um, I wasn't relying on it, my traditional distributor to do that. I booked my own theatrical run before COVID happened by just emailing art house theaters and saying, hey, would you play my movie? Here's a one sheet and a trailer. Um, and uh, I came from impact distribution. So I have done some semi-theatrical events. Um, that being said, my distributor is a unique one. I work with Giant Pictures and Ben probably knows them well. And they're unique in that they're very uh, flexible. Um, I think that some distributors, you may approach them and they might not want theatrical. They, it might be a very easy thing for them to give up. And we're in a pandemic, so they might not be interested in airlines either, right? Because they're not doing so well. But if a, if a distributor is not willing to be flexible with you or they're not able to prove why they need those rights and how they're going to exploit them <laughs> to the best of their ability, then you may not want to work with that distributor. You want to work with someone who's flexible and creative. Transparent. And uh, Zaki says she's had no reports since January from her distributor, Dauntless. I'm writing, I'm writing Dauntless down. <laughs> <laughs> I just wrote everything you said. I just, I'm taking notes, guys. See, filmmakers, I'm literally taking notes. This is such great stuff. You should be, I hope you're taking notes. Uh, Glenn, did you want to add on to? Sure. Um, I find that within the, I agree with everything Liz said about the, the rights she talked about. What's hard, what's really hard to, what would be lovely to carve up would be to take, you know, certain digital rights. 
um, to withhold because there are ways you can get to some of these platforms yourself, but it's like, like particularly cable, it's hard to get the cable VOD. It's hard to make that SVOD sale. Amazon, you could, you know, ease, everybody can go on Amazon and, and do it themselves. Um, there's a, uh, there's a couple of, uh, there's places like giant, there's, there's film hub, there's, you know, ways to get to the AVOD space that's um, less encumbered with costs than a distributor would be. Um, but it's, it's, it's hard to get traditional distributors to, to carve up those rights. They just, they don't want to, they don't want to do Google play only and give you Amazon. They want to do, they want to be flown. And there's plenty, like if, if your film is not going to work for them, there's another film coming around the corner is kind of right. the attitude, you know? Uh, can we talk about deliverables? Now I know this, we can't get, it's hard to get specific because I know every film has different things, but the reason I want to talk about deliverables is because I don't think people understand that they need to be thinking about this before they even go to set. Um, can we go through some of the things that pop up that maybe filmmakers tend to forget they need to do or don't think about? I mean, the big one I assume we were alluding to is photography, right? Is not necessarily I behind the scenes imagery, but uh, choreograph stills with your cast. I am that. dealing with this right now, <laughs> literally trying to pull frames from the movie because one actor is in one coast and the other actor is in another country and we ain't getting them back, people. <laughs> You've got to think about that ahead of time, your movie poster. And just yeah. and I would say just getting a bunch of people, like getting your, your names and your leads in solos in front of like a white wall or something, something you could just yeah. do different poses and let the later it can be decided how it's going to be put together. We did it, yeah, in front of a seamless on set. We, it, I, my producers almost plotted because we were getting behind, but um, it was like one producer was against another. We wanted to get more pages of the day. The other one was like, what about marketing and distribution? Uh, yes, important. I would say that's really important. Um, I'm trying to think of what you would be thinking about on set specifically, but just making sure, and I'm the last person to do this, so this is me uh, talking the talk but not walking the walk, but making sure you have enough money to pay for these deliver deliverables to be created. You know, closed caption files, subtitles. Um, if you're outsourcing a trailer, you know, the cost for trailer edit, the cost for a really beautiful poster, the entire release could be based off of a really good image, a thumbnail of your poster. So um, making sure you have the funds set aside for those kind of things. But yeah, uh, advocate for bringing, bringing, making sure your cast is on set in those photographs. I think there's probably things that came up too for us, like suddenly the sound, like we had, we had, we, I mean, obviously you're, hopefully you're thinking about post-production sound and ADR, but I feel like there's other things that just seem to happen when you're, now you need to deliver and you don't have those things. Um, there's just, there, it's, it's insane. And I feel like that's something that every filmmaker needs to think about for your distribution from beginning, from day one, it needs to be on your to-do list. Even if it's after the film is done, it needs to be in your budget. Like she said, and Kate says, blurg deliverables. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Glenn, have you ever had any problems come up where filmmakers just didn't have what they needed to have to, yeah. I mean, even paperwork, like you've that's got to have, a, have, to have paperwork for everybody. Yeah, I mean, that's quite often the whole is either, you know, chain of title between writer's agreements or production agreements, actor agreements, location agreements. Um, you know, don't have someone sing a song in the movie that you didn't license <laughs> um, certain rights for. Um, uh, yeah, music licensing is something I find that like a lot of people struggle with at the end of the day. Um, which you know, a lot of people hang on to those 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 cues and think I got to have them, and then they end up having to give them up because they don't have the budget for it. Or they get festival rights instead of all rights. It drives yeah. me absolutely crazy. Don't just get festival rights for the and music. The, and, and some of the will, some some will, some of the companies will price you out and not really be reasonable with giving right. you all rights, and so you can't do it. You just have to let it go, you know, because if you get just festival rights, you know, you're never going to get a price that's fair. Um, all rights later, it's totally true. Um, the reasons I will not, I will not let my editor put in temp music. Like, and I remember when I got my the, the cutback after uh, from the assistant editor, and I just didn't even listen to what she put. I literally went in and deleted it all. And I told her before, and I said, "Don't waste your time putting music in. 
I'm going to delete it. And I did as soon as it came back because I don't want to get attached to anything. Also, I'm a snob about music and where it goes. So, you know, I'll be the one to deal with it. Uh, but yeah, I think that the delivers, there's, uh, as far as titles and stuff too, guys, if you're out doing, um, you're at the point where you are getting subtitles and closed captions, I highly recommend rev.com, rev.com. I don't know where you guys went, but from Rev is, was a dream. Like we sent them our movie and we told them what we needed and it was super cheap and fast. Um, everybody else is so expensive and I, they're not paying me for this. Maybe I should, I should make that. Rev <laughs> need to sponsor us. Uh, but I know it's something that everybody deals with and they don't know where to go. And I see that question pop up in groups all the time. Do they do dialogue lists by any chance? I don't know. You know. That's another thing that some distributors want that co you know should cost less than it does. Um, and um, so if anybody has any good uh, dialogue, I, I've, I have a couple of places I send people, but they're not cheap. What, um, and when you say a dialogue list, is that basically just every line in the movie? Set the time code. Yeah, basically. And um, it seems like, it, hey, I can just do it myself, but it's, it's a really, oh God. really intensive. Oh thing to do you can't you really can't I feel like they must do that because I mean they even when you get back your SRT files or whatever you need you always have that the actual document so I would I've just that. submitted a script and they I mean like they requested an, an EDL right that's the acronym I think um but then ultimately I would say I don't have it and submitted the script and and I got away right uh, they, I skated away somehow oh, with the distributor you were able to yeah. give them a script oh that's cool that's good um yeah. Also, so one, other, one other cost to think about later on is you know insurance um, is something that some distributors will waive it, some will pretend to pay for it um, and recoup it. Um, but a lot of, especially if you go to a certain level of distributor and above, especially if you get a deal with Netflix, you're gonna you have to have ENO. They have too many lawyers for you not to have ENO, and that generally, if you get a, a, a re decent rate, should be around twenty five hundred dollars. Um, on top of that, you usually need like a title and copyright report. That's usually around seven, eight hundred dollars too. Making movies is expensive, y'all. Mm -hmm. And ENO means errors and omissions. If you're not, if you didn't, not familiar with that term, uh, and filmmakers, we have a few minutes left. So if you have questions, get them, get them in the box now. I want to try to answer all of your questions. Um, I know a lot of you have gone to film festivals and had a really rough year because it's been virtual and you're, you're it, what happened too. And I don't know, Liz and Glenn, how much you've heard of this, but like, I even have a, a, a friend of mine who she was South by Southwest and before the festival, her phone's ringing off the hook. And then the minute it went virtual, the phone stopped ringing. And I'm like, but it's still the same film. But I think distributors want to be part of that party. They want to go and be there. So it's a struggle for filmmakers to find good distribution. Yeah, I don't know if they want to go there, but it 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 does do something to them when they are there, right? It just is an atmosphere. I think they would all be fine not traveling to Sundance and I mean maybe South by. There's great barbecue and music, right? So it's a different, it's maybe a little bit more fun to some of these guys. But a lot of them are just worn out by Sundance, and I think you know I think Sundance this year is going to do some screenings in LA and New York and some other places. It'll be interesting to see if that takes hold or what, what that, what that seems like. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, I had a film that was in South by Southwest this year and it, you know, it definitely took the piss out of everything. You know, it was a, it's a definitely a whole different uh, strategy when you don't have uh, that kind of venue to play the film. Yeah, but it's, it's pretty heartbreaking. The playing field is leveled, right? We're all we're all suffering together. That's right. That's and I right. do think, um, though, there's only been a few articles and 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 data that's come back about it. Virtual events are an opportunity. Virtual screenings, virtual theatrical, and um, this is like an opportunity for filmmakers to communicate directly with festivals and saying how much of the ticket price am I going to get if you're going to use my film? Are you going to geo block this? How available is this going to be? So here's like, what's happening though, because we just went through this and both, both of the festivals, which were decent festivals and very filmmaker centric festivals were like, we're sorry, we cannot split ticket money. Cause we, I straight up asked, I was like, can you yeah. split the ticket money with us? They're like, we can't. And I get it. They think they have all these, they have all these overhead, whatever they think they have. Um, like, so th we were like, well, can we get the email addresses of the people who watch our films? So we can at least ask them to go to Amazon later. We can't do that. Like they literally gave us nothing. So at the end of the day, 
we were grateful to be part of the festivals and they were the festivals that if they were in person, we would have loved it and been there and had the best time. But we didn't tell anybody we were screening until the screening was over because we didn't want to lose thousands of dollars. Oh. Our audience, we need our audience to go to Amazon that one time we go out. And so it's been kind of a bummer. And it's um, an iterative process, right? So it's like yeah. as filmmakers start to remind festivals what we need and what we want, hopefully they'll evolve to right. making ticket buyers sign consent agreements about their email addresses, right? I, I understand it's a massive legal uh, um, haul, haul yeah. over to change those things, but I'm sorry that you had that bad experience yeah. too. But I think a lot of filmmakers are, so I appreciate your guys' time here. Um, we have a, uh, one last question from our, our Oz, John. He says, uh, Glenn, are there films that catch your eye, make you want to make a deal with a filmmaker? Are there, are there certain things that you see? Is it, oh, they have a name talent? Is it, oh, this film is good? Like, are you just like, I'll help anybody because I want to help everybody? There's a little of that. I mean, I definitely rip some films because I like the filmmaker more than the movie. Because, um, uh, you know, I generally, I think generally, you know, everybody needs some help. Um, but I love all kinds of movies. I love documentaries. I love comedies. I love, I mean, I've been a film freak since I was a kid and that's why I'm in this mostly. And it's not, you know, it's not for me about name value. I mean, I, I, I mean, that, that's partly where I swim though. I don't, you know, maybe one out of 20 films that I sell has, you know, a decent sized name. So uh, I'm pretty used to not to having names and mostly working off, of, you know, great concepts, you know, great marketing um, and good little movies. So no, I'm pretty, I am pretty, open. I love it. And Liz, right now, how are you, you said you're consulting, how are you helping filmmakers in your new? Uh, similar to this, this panel, I'm um, an educational resource. I am an advocate for them. I connect them to distributors. I look at offers and I advise on um, whether they'd be good ones and, and whether they should run screaming. Um, and <laughs> I worked for Peter Broderick for three years. I managed the Sundance Creative Distribution Initiative, and then I worked in impact distribution for a year. So I have a pretty wide array of knowledge in terms of how to release a film and build an audience. Well, you guys have both been fantastic. And so there's so much knowledge and, and, and care that comes from you. I love it. Um, and as you filmmakers can see, they've actually put their email addresses up. Who does that? So email them with your, you know, when you have your film and see if you're a fit to work together and how they can help you. Um, I will let you guys go with a very big thank you, thank you, thank, thank you. you.